friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Ladies and gentlemen, this is episode 38 of the MC Lars podcast. It is Monday, May 20th. I just finished a Midwest Southern tour with MC Frontalot, Megaran, and Shafe of the Dark Lord. And I have a few shows coming up I wanted to plug. June 8th, I'm playing the Bright Music Hall with Big D and the Kids Table. And I'm playing a lot of the Robot Kill stuff with my original band. June 15th, I play Underground Arts with MC Frontalot and Word Burglar. It's like a con after party kind of thing in Philly. Then I played the Warp Tour on June 28th, the Atlantic City date. And then July 7th, I'm playing Anime Midwest. Then the last weekend in July, I'm playing a Jersey convention I cannot announce. That's all. I'm uh, back home. The tour was awesome. Working on a bunch of projects. Working on a big secret project I can't talk about yet, but you will be hearing more about that later this year. Um, So nothing planned. No other shows. I'm doing a New Year's Eve show in Monterey. But other than that, there's nothing else planned. So back in the lab, marinating, incubating, and chatting with my friends. This week, it's part one of a two-part series on the Dead Milkmen, a legendary Philadelphia band. I guess you could say post-punk band, punk band. And I found out about these guys because back in high school, Adam and his package covered their nutrition song. And I was like, oh, who is this band? Adam talked about how they were a legendary Philadelphia band, but people didn't take them seriously because they were like silly. I remember reading that in the liner notes. Then there was a compilation. There were these two box sets that Rhino put out. One of them was called No Thanks, and it was like awesome 70s punk rock primer, all the music they could get from the 70s on a box set. And then Left of the Dial, which was an 80s like punk post-punk box set that came out in 2004. And the first one, the 70s punk compilation, didn't have any Sex Pistols because of a label disagreement because Rhino had decided not to put out a Sex Pistols box set. So there was a feud. So it was every punk, like all the classic punk songs from the 70s on one box set, minus the Sex Pistols. Then Left of the Dial was everything from the 80s, like the indie revolution. So stuff like Dead Kennedys, Mission of Burma, you know, early like REM, like all this really cool stuff. And guess what else was on this? Dead Milkman. So I knew Punk Rock Girl and I knew Dead Milkman, but it was really cool to hear them in the context of punk and post-punk music. So that's some background on me. So who was in the group? Who are the Dead Milkman members? you got Joe Jack Talcum, who I talked to this week, Rodney Anonymous, who I talked to next week, Dean Clean, and Dave Blood, who was the bass player who committed suicide and the band went on hiatus. And I, we talk about, you know, memories of Dave Blood and what this was like for the band and and it's kind of it gets kind of like emotional and moving talking about that. Rodney and Joe Jack are very different people and I wanted to interview them di- on different episodes cuz like I interviewed Joe, Rodney and Adam from Adam's Package on the same day earlier this year and Adam was like, "Wow, you're talking to Joe, you're talking to Joe and Rodney. Hopefully Joe will get a word in and <laughs> cuz Rodney's very gregarious and talkative and hilarious." So, wanted to get different perspectives on the same story. Uh Dave Blood Rest in Peace was replaced by Dan Stevens, who had played music with Joe Jack. And Punk Rock Girl was an early MTV hit. Like in 1988, it was played all the time. And it kind of was like a harbinger for the change of music. And I think it's cool. Joe talks about how he didn't play distorted guitar. They were punk, but they were post-punk in that like they had a sense of humor. They were smart alecky. There was an earnestness and seriousness in punk rock that they kind of subverted, which is why I love them. And they never sacrificed like fantastic melodies. So Adam Bernstein, who directed the Punk Rock Girl video, later did the It's Pat movie, the uh, kind of problematic gender comedy character who you don't know if it's a boy or a girl. Nowadays, not so appropriate. It wasn't a, a huge film, but trivia that Adam directed that. And then Six Ways to Sunday, which was a movie with Debbie Harry from Blondie. Um, we talk about the origin of Dead Milkman. We talk about how it started as like a skit, like a project that was inspired by Monty Python. And the quick story, Joe Jack Talcum was a character 
who was like a Bob Dylan inspired character who was the Joe Jack Talcum Jr. was the son of a character who was like Bob Dylan. And Joe Jack Talcum Jr. was trying to amalgamate punk and folk in a genre called punk folk, which now folk punk is an actual thing. And uh, th they made these demos and these songs on New Year's Eve, 1979. Joe talks about growing up in Wagontown, Pennsylvania. He lived near a cow pasture. And he has memories of milkmen coming, delivering eggs and milk when he was a kid. And that slowly being phased out. So Dead Milkman, kind of like it was an homage to the Dead Boys. He talks about how he didn't, he hadn't heard of the Dead Kennedys, but it was an homage to that. And times changing, like de Dead Milkman, Milkmen don't come anymore. The first show was on July 23rd, 1982, three months before I was born. And I think it's a really cool story is how they got their start from being like this indie band to getting onto MTV. There was a band called Bowmen of Barumba who had a album out on Fever Records and they were like looking through their album collection. They're like, oh, Fever Records, the address is right near our rehearsal studio. So their producer reached out to them and uh, then it was on and popping. They were just very prolific, hilarious band. We talk about how when Punk Rock Girl was on Beavis and Butthead, Beavis was like, oh, look, that singer, he's the one guy in a music video I could probably beat up, ha, ha, ha. And how Beavis and Butthead kind of bullied Joe, but how it was also an honor. Uh, we talk about their breakup then how they got back together to play a show in Austin. And we end with Joe's solo cover of Dean's Dream, which is awesome. So that's some background on what's coming up. This is my interview with Joe Jack Talcum. Next week is Rodney Anonymous. Enjoy. And Joe Jack, thank you for your time. Oh yeah, one last thing. Joe Jack just released a split with Gravy Train on This and That Tapes. And it came out on May 15th. So be sure to check it out. This and that tapes.bandcamp.com. It's on there. So check out his new project. All right, here's the interview. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here with. Joe Jack Talcum of the Dead Milkman, a radio personality, solo artist, collaborator, songwriter, singer, musician, Philadelphia legend. Joe, thank you for hosting me to come to your house to record you. Oh, you're, you're quite welcome. Thanks for coming. This, I'm not a radio personality. <laughs> I want to talk to you about your solo careers, your collaborative projects, your tours, your life. And I have pages of notes, as you can see, but we might derivate completely from this. Okay, I'll do my best. You grew up in Pennsylvania, correct? Yes. I grew up in a town called Wagontown. Closest city is Coatesville. Your friend Garth and you came up with a fictional backstory for Dead Milk. Yeah, Man Garth Band, right? was my across-the-street neighbor. We would make comedy skits audio tapes. That's what we did first. That evolved or devolved into making musical things. And we did all kinds of stuff together. We played games, cards and stuff. And yeah, we came up with the concept of the Dead Milkman and started making tapes as that. Are you still friends with Garth? Oh yeah. I, I just saw him uh, about a week ago. Before that, I hadn't seen him for about 10 years, so. Does he still live in Chester County? No, now he lives in Philadelphia. Can we talk about the backstory of the Dead Milkman legend a little bit? I wanted to make a fan club newsletter because I had joined a fan club called the Wings Fun Club, and I was amused by what I received in the mail. I put together a newsletter, but I, I had already created a character in my mind called Jack Talcum, this is before the Dead Milkman concept 
it wasn't a story that I had planned out ahead of time. It was just kind of like a childish imagination and see where it goes. Jack Talcum was postured after Bob Dylan because Bob Dylan was somebody I was interested in when I was 15 years old. I wanted Jack Talcum to be the evil Bob Dylan or the... Um, the shadow Bob the Dylan. The shadow. Yeah. And he infiltrated a punk rock band in the story and took them over and became their lead singer and created what he thought was a novel genre at the time called uh, punk folk. So that's the whole idea is that it was like folk music, but super rude. That was the backstory, basically, before newsletter number one was created. Uh. But so newsletter number one was created with that idea, but it was also written from the point of view of a staff that hated Jack Talcum. He was like the boss that they paid a salary, but he he was despised. That came out in the articles. <laughs> the fanzine articles, they yeah. hated working for him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, that was sort of what was going on there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he infiltrated the band, The Dead Milkman. The first album is Jack Talcum Jr. and The Dead Milkman. Ah, oh, cool. Uh, so Long 70s. Most of it was recorded on New Year's Eve really quickly and then uh, put together a few days after that using cassette-to-cassette overdumbing process because there was no cassette four-track or any kind of four-track multi-track that we could get our hands on back at the time. Wow. But Garth and I had been doing cassette skits prior to that, and our first ones were just live and then edited from cassette-to-cassette to string the, the skits along and... Some of that inspiration came from listening to Monty Python albums, vinyl albums. That's awesome. What year would you say this is? 79 is the winter, the break between Christmas and the next year would be 80. Garth and I had a senior year and Rodney was junior year then, same school. And then we go back to school for the second half of the year. And huh. in the second half of the year, we had a tape <laughs> that was so long 70s by Jack Talcum Jr. in the demo. By the way, Jack Talcum <laughs> is the son. Jack Talcum Jr. is the son of Jack Talcum, who in the backstory was a famous folk singer. Oh, he wasn't. Okay. He didn't have any punk aspirations like his son. Does the name come from Toni Morrison? It doesn't. It doesn't? No. Oh, good. Rodney might want you to believe that. That just was an after the fact because... That's, that's one of the books that we passed around in the van in the early Dead Milkman touring days. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, there's a character called Milkman Dead. And so w one of the questions that invariably was asked at interviews back then is, how did you get your name? Right. So every time we, I mean, we kept making contradictory answers to that question, okay. almost on purpose contradictory because we were wise asses and thought that would be funny <laughs> to do. Yeah. And... I guess the one that stuck the most was that one. It, it could make sense because that book was written in time for it to be. It wasn't really. It just came out of your imagination. Those words just came out of your imagination. Yeah, I was familiar with the Dead Boys. Uh -huh. Of course, the Grateful Dead. But uh, I was not yet familiar with the Dead Kennedys. But I like the name the Dead Boys. I like the fact that a punk band called themselves Dead, <laughs> figuratively. Uh, so I thought Dead would be a good punk band. But I wanted something rural sounding and i thought milk i don't know why it's rural sounding but back then in my brain i lived what 
in an area I've considered the country, Wagontown. Across the street in one direction was Gar's house, and across the street in another direction was a cow pasture. So cows were on my mind just from proximity of there being cows. Were there milkmen in that era, in that mm. time, or not? When I was a little kid, I remember there being a milkman who delivered milk, eggs and whatever, in a horse and buggy. Then I remember that stopping, or maybe my parents stopped the service. They seemed to be a disappearing thing. So yeah. that's another connotation of the name dead milkman is that milkman is a dead occupation. Interesting. <laughs> There's layers. But I just needed a name for the, a stupid name for the band for the story. Yeah. I didn't realize it was going to stick to be a real, the band name as, as we progressed. In fact, when it came to be that we were going to be a real band and we got our first gig, Rodney, Dave, and I, not Dean, because we decided he was going to, he was the last member of the band and we auditioned him and he was great. Mm. And we said, yeah, you're in, you're in the band. And he got us our first gig. Dean did way sooner than I imagined that we would ever get our first <laughs> gig. So I kind of had a scramble. We can't call ourselves the dead milkman. What can we call ourselves? And we had a lit, long list of names. Rodney comes up with names real quick. And Dave had a bunch of names. Yeah. When Dean came for the next practice, we were going to ask him to weigh in on a, on a new name for the band. But he came to practice with Dead Milkman spray painted logo stenciled on all of his drum cases. So maybe that's great. And he said, "Yeah, he said Dead Milkman. You want to change the name of the band? The Dead Milkman's a great name." And he also made a logo. So that's his his logo, the cow he, with the yeah, eyes. Yeah, the cow, cow with the eyes was created in 1983. Wow! Shortly after he joined the band, 83 was your first official show. I believe I remember the date exactly: July 23rd, 1983. Did you ever release like the uh, old stuff you and Garth did? I put some of it on my website, and it's still there. Okay. But some of it is very embarrassing, and I wouldn't want people to hear it. At that point, did you decide you would be Joe Jack Talcum based on that character? Was that like your name in the band then, or was that later? Once we became the real band, each of us picked a pseudonym, and I was the last to pick. I had a hard time deciding. Uh, so everybody's first name was their same first name, so I was going to be Joe. And I remember my... <laughs> I don't know why, but I, like, I went to a dictionary and... Since Rodney was anonymous and Dave was blood and Dean was clean, I wanted a D for my last name. Uh. <laughs> and I went through all the Ds that I in the dictionary and I like I said, I like diphthong. I really like that. But uh, nobody else liked it at all. <laughs> Joe diphthong. <laughs> yes, like I think it means two consonants come to form another sound that's not of either of them, right? Oh, okay, Is that right. a T and H or a P and an H? I didn't want to be Jack Talcum, and that's what I was at first when we were in the band, and Rodney yeah. called me Jack, and I was Jack Talcum. I was Jack for 83, 84. It was when Big Lizard in My Backyard album came out that I decided to insert Joe before Jack Talcum. I guess somebody said, somebody has to be the Jack Talcum of the band, so that was me. Yeah. So I was the Jack Talcum of the band, but when it came to putting the album out, I chickened out and I'd said I don't want to be Jack I'm everybody calls me Joe so I just inserted Joe in the beginning of Jack Talcum now people call you just Joe mostly yes yeah for me I have multiple names too when I came oh, yeah. when I came into your house you're like do I call you Andrew or Lars it's confusing <laughs> right you probably don't even flinch when people call you Joe Jack right nope you're like, it seems that's like me. a naturalist thing now I tried to be Jasper but it didn't take Jasper yeah 
Jasper Jack Talcum or just no Jasper Thread on the Beelzebub album? I called myself Jasper Thread in the credits, but I don't think people oh. pay attention to credits that much. I mean, that's the sign that they don't. Big Lizard in my backyard was '85, and that was how did you n- n- connect with the Restless Records team? We paid for out of our band fund money ten songs that we had originally planned to put out as an EP because our songs were so short, <laughs> 10 songs would make an EP. Yeah. And it was sort of the punk thing to do in 84, do an EP that would probably play at 45 RPM, who knows? I mean, the Meat Puppets did something like that and they were one of my favorites. There's a lot of SST albums that came out that were really EPs, 12 inches, and they had what would normally be like for prog rock a double album's number of songs, but <laughs> right. they sped along at, you know, 10 songs at maybe 20 minutes for the whole set. <laughs> yeah. So that's what we were doing, in my mind anyway. So we had that ready to go. The person who was going to fund the actual vinyl actually had to back out due to a car accident. Mm. He later became our tour manager, but that's a different story. Mm. So we were left with the song, so we decided we would shop them around and we sent, sent them to various record companies that we knew of from, like, I think it was Musician Magazine had addresses of record companies mm. in it. The only response we got back from any of them was from Enigma Records out in California. And I believe the response was, we thank you, but no, we don't have any interest at this time. None of the other record companies, four or five others that we sent to, responded whatsoever if i remember correctly Mm. but in the meantime dave came across an album i think they're called bones of barumba and it was on a label called fever and we saw the address was philadelphia address Ah. and it wasn't even far from where we practiced at the time in south philly we paid a visit to that address and found there was a person there named colin who was fever records it was his like side project, and he's a university. Of, he was a University of Pennsylvania professor at the time. And Dave lived in West Philly at the time. Rodney and I lived in South Philly, where we practiced. And it just so happened that he was also friends at University of Pennsylvania with a guy named Mike Morrison. He was at WXPN in University of Pennsylvania radio station, where we had already done a, a Sunday night live show, because back then that radio station was basically. A, community run by station run by um, the students of the University of Pennsylvania. Hmm. And on Sunday nights, they had a show that was dedicated to punk and new wave music called Yesterday's Now Music Today. And occasionally there would be bands playing. We were one of the bands that we had the uh, awesome opportunity of playing live. And we had the song Bitch and Camaro at the time. And by the that stuff's now released on something called Now We Are 20, a CD called Now We Are 20. Oh, yeah. But... So Mike knew of us from having played at radio station and someone at the station carted up the song Bitch and Camaro. That means that they took that song and made a like a what you call a cartridge tape of it to play because this is pre-digital. Yeah. And it was getting some attention on the radio. And he said he told that to the fever guy, the Colin. Yeah, this band, you might want to like Colin knew we were interested, and he said, Well, They've, they're getting a little buzz about them, so maybe you should sign them. And Colin said, "Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll sign you, but I don't want—I don't think ten songs is too skimpy. If I give you a, 
uh, some money. I think it was nine hundred dollars, maybe, or to to record to double it up and record <laughs> ten more songs. We did that in the same studio, and that's how we signed a contract and all that stuff oh. with Fever Records. It was a four record deal that we signed, but Fever Records in turn signed a pressing and distribution deal with Enigma Records. There was no such thing as Restless yet. Ah, okay. So our very first pressing of The Big Lizard was a Fever slash Enigma thing, where Fever was the rights holder and Enigma was the pressing and distribution thing, arm of it. So that's how we got involved with the Restless people. So Restless was an imprint through EMI. When Enigma did a deal with Capital. Capital is a major label distributor, distributor, and um, having Restless allowed them to keep one foot in the indie world. Capital would distribute the acts that they felt would do better in the major label distribution market. Okay. And then in the, in the indie label distribution market, Restless stuck with that because Enigma already had made it. I guess they were already a major independent mm. distributor back then. So it's a lot of layers. More, more metal music. They were more into metal music back then, but yeah, that's what they. Yeah, there were a lot of layers. But like, what was punk like in Philadelphia at the time? Like, what other bands would you play with? How, we play that? with a lot of bands. Some that you yeah. wouldn't even consider to be punk. Did you consider yourselves punk rock? Yeah, yeah. We took a at least I we took a broader view of what punk was, and we were influenced mm -hmm. by bands like the Minutemen, who also consider themselves punk. It's really, I guess, all can be lumped in into post punk. Okay. Post-punk being like, not necessarily sounding like the Ramones, right? But but having that sort of attitude? or Yeah. yeah. Influenced by their, sure, Ramones, big influence. Yeah. Being sillier, more wise-ass right up front. Yeah. Ramones have some silly songs too and yeah. funny things. Definitely sillier than Minor Threat or or Black Flag. Yeah. But so, so bands in, in Philly that we've played shows with would be... Back in the day, D Control, FOD a lot, a lot of shows with FOD. One of my favorites, Flag of Democracy is what it stood for. Electric Love Muffin, no longer around, but they were, Electric Love Muffin were, I guess, more Husker Du inspired. I don't, I'm not sure, but they were uh, almost country and poppy, but punk at the same time. It was almost like punk meant that you played with a, a like a, an attitude or a, an earnestness or something, but or, yeah. or you're you're fit into the scene. I mean, fit in the scene. But we also played shows with a band called the Johnsons a lot, mm. and I want to call them punk, but they were more like indie pop or indie rock. Yeah. So we kind of straddled that line in a way. And I didn't even play distorted guitar a lot in, in, in the beginning. And I, every oh. other punk band played distortion on yeah. the guitar. Do you think that helped you stand out? It wasn't a conscious decision on to stand out. You guys stand out as like having fun, funny songs with like great choruses and the sense of humor. Like, was that conscious or was that just what made you guys laugh? You know, I think it was conscious. Yeah. I mean, I think so because, but, but at the same time we wrote, we wrote songs that were definitely not funny from the very beginning. That's how we started out was trying to make things that made people laugh. Ronnie has and had a great talent for coming up with the uh, quirky rhymes and song lyrics the balance between you two as the vocalists how was that personally rodney played a lot in before we ever became a public band a lot of different roles because he was bass player well he's a drummer bass player i forget which word i think it's bass player yeah, bass player till dave came along then drummer 
uh, till Dean came along, and then vocalist. Wow. So I sang the majority of the songs that were on the tapes. And Rodney sang some too. But we have completely different styles. I wanted Rodney to be the front man of the band. He agreed hmm. before we ever played a show. And that's how that worked out. Yeah. And he was also the predominant lyricist. So it almost made sense that he would be the vocalist too. Okay. In my mind. Yeah. There are history of bands that songwriters are not the singers, but I thought it made sense. And maybe that would take off some of the pressure. Did you want to be a front man? I did not. I didn't even, I didn't, I didn't want to be a front man of anything. Yeah. And so punk rock girl being in that video singing, was that an accident? Like who decided that that should have been a single? I don't know. Yeah. We didn't have control in our contract. We had a lot of control over things, but one of the things we did not have control over was which song would be made a video for. And if I had my druthers, we would have made zero videos. Yeah, but they forced But try to sign a contract in the 1980s and have that. Well, it didn't happen. The record company put the money up for the videos, so they got to say. Did you have involvement in like shooting at the um, asylum there or like? We had complete control over the video content up until something would, well, we thought we did, then things Later, later, some things, whatever, like something we wanted in a video would get uh, denied. Yeah. Or have, we'd have to do a re-edit. That happened in the Methodist coloring book video. We had to do a re-edit because, not because of the record company, but the record company at that point, the record company presented to MTV and MTV would say, we will not show this video unless you remove this scene. What was the scene? We had a scene... Where and it was a friend of ours that that engineered it, but we had uh, like a train, uh, a miniature train set uh, set up. You know the the town. Yeah. Well, there, there was a church, and we the scene was it. The church blows up. <laughs> in in I guess it was towards the end in the big crescendo part. Yeah. But the all the video was shot in a church. So they, MTV didn't want the church blowing up. I think it was our director's idea. He said, well, why don't we just run it backwards? Then it would come back together from being blown up. And that's what they just switched it to run backwards and <laughs> it got approved. MTV had so much power, right? Then they'd tell but, a label. Yeah, 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 that's what they did. They had a lot of power because they were the single conduit, I guess, of <laughs> <laughs> exposure to these songs. What was it like when... The Beavis and Butthead thing happened. Like, did you know it was going to happen? Mm-mm. Or you just were watching and you saw it? I didn't know. I heard from somebody and one of our fans say, did you know? Yeah. <laughs> now I can't remember. Beavis or Butthead claims they could beat me up. <laughs> <laughs> Beavis says, he says you're the one guy he, he wants to beat. He says he could beat up. <laughs> yeah. And he's so skinny, I guess. Is it believable? An animated <laughs> character could beat me up. I guess it could happen. That's did, did that hurt your feelings? No. <laughs> did you see your demographics at shows change when the Beavis and Butthead thing happened, or that video was already a, a big hit already, right? Like the punk rock girl one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, they didn't ask you for permission, right? No, I, no one asked us for permission. Yeah, would you have given it if they had? Or I suppose to have these sarcastic cartoon characters now you're canonized in that world. Yeah, now. yeah, and that supposedly is an honor and and a great thing as well. Record companies would fall over backwards to be 
in in <laughs> Beavis and made fun of. Yeah, yeah. more attention, I guess. That, but I suppose it's better if they like Beavis and Butthead like the video than not liked it. Right. And we were we we got two videos that were not liked by Beavis and Butthead in, in the early nineties. But it's rotation spinning. Yeah. It's did, attention. Yeah. Do you feel like when grunge and stuff happened, did that make it easier and better for you guys, or was it harder? Like that the indie music and punk music had more of like an acceptance in that route, but did it also feel like that was how it had to sound? Mainstream music needed to sound. Like, I think that's probably the idea that the, that people paying attention to mainstream thought. We were on our way out by then anyway. When you did Soul Rotation and Not Richard But Dick, right? Those were the two records that Hollywood put out. Was that exciting or was that like frustrating? Well, we didn't have a record label after Enigma went out of business. And we were back at Square One where we made a demo, just shopped it around. Mm -hmm. If I remember, Hollywood was the only offer we got. We didn't have any others at all because we had... Beelzebubba was our biggest selling album at the point, but I guess Metaphysical Graffiti was considered a disappointment in relation to that one. Okay. So Metaphysical Graffiti had Methodist Coloring Book. That was the video, oh, right. which I didn't choose or want, but that was a video from that. If you love Somebody Set Them on Fire, that's Metaphysical Graffiti's probably most fa famous song. It was the only offer we got. So I guess it was exciting. We got an offer. And they were related to Disney. I think we signed to them in 91 and recorded an album for them at the end of 91. You know, another band that was on Hollywood Records that didn't stay on Hollywood Records is Insane Clown Posse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I kind of knew that in the back of my mind. And then they had an ill-fated experience, too. Did they have with Hollywood? Well, what was it? Because, because when The Great Malenko came out, which was their big album, the Baptist Church's coalition had boycott Disney for having a day that's for gay families. Oh, okay. So Disney was like, oh, well, we need to be more aware of what we're putting out. And so the Great Malenko album was, you know, it's like typical ICP, like kind of controversial. Yeah. So they secretly dropped them, but then it came out that, they dropped them because of the controversy around the Baptist boycotting, trying to placate them, right? So yeah. that's the story there. So they dropped them. <laughs> it's interesting that you briefly were label mates with ICP. Yeah. And with Butthole Surfers as well. I don't have fond memories of Hollywood records, but... Labels then were this necessary evil, right? Yeah. They did get us a Sega Genesis console, if I remember, to take on tour with us. So <laughs> that's, that's nice. That's nice. What was your favorite game for Genesis? I don't think we had anything but the one, the Sonic Hedgehog thing that came with it. I liked it a lot. That's a good game. In 94, was that when you went broke up? That's when we decided to break up, yes. Yeah. But I think, it was it announced then or was it 95? We did one final album that was recorded in 94, but it didn't come out to 95 because I guess we record things at the end of year and come out the next year but yeah 94 we bro officially broke up and played our official last show in october of 94 and that was a stoney's extra stout pig yeah 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 and did you know that that was going to be a, your last album for a bit yes what led to that wanting to break up we just had toured so much and uh wanted to do other things with our lives it'd been almost 10 years or it had been about yeah. a decade yeah I think it was getting stale yeah this whole make an album tour make an album tour make an album tour thing did you all have a meeting about it or like how yes. did, who brought it up? Dean, because he was a graphic designer yeah. by training, went to the Art Institute. The World Wide Web was coming into fashion at the time and he wanted to go back into graphic design specifically for the, the internet or web, yeah. which is what he did. Yeah. So we thought, okay, he said, it's totally fine with me if you guys could replace me and get a different drummer and keep on doing this. Mm. 
So we thought about it. I think we thought about it for a week. I don't know. Maybe it was less, but we said, no, we don't want to get a different drummer. Let's just, let's just all go our separate ways and do new things now. Mm, wow. Wow. And was, were you guys on tour when you had that conversation or you were, we were in the, we were home, but we were in home for a couple of weeks and then for the Christmas break of a, a longer tour. So we, yeah, we had two more months, maybe two and a half months till we were finished doing the tour that it's already been booked. But we also agreed after we agreed that we were breaking up, that we wouldn't tell a soul, especially not the record company. So mm. it was a secret that we kept amongst the four of us, mm. plus our manager. So that's five people. Dave Rackner, our manager, knew. Yeah. But nobody else knew. Because if we, if we let Hollywood Records know, we feared at the time that they would just stop helping us promote stuff on the tour. Right. <laughs> so we didn't want them to know. Most of our shows were selling out at that point, so it didn't make any sense, I guess, for public for uh, sales of tickets to say, "Oh, this is our last tour," because it didn't matter. There's only we were already booked in these places, and we we're already getting capacity crowds. Yeah, well, how was the fan reaction, and how were, was the label reaction when you did announce it? I don't think it mattered at all to Hollywood because our fear that they would drop us anyway. They weren't going to do a, another record with us no matter what because not Richard but Dick did not meet the goals that they had set. They had specific sales goals and we didn't mm. meet them like by Christmas or whatever it was. Right, right. We knew that we were dropped, I guess, okay. as we were on our last <laughs> tour. Uh, but Restless came back into the picture at this point, Restless Records, and wanted to release a best-of package, which became... Death Rides a Pale Cow, and a mm. live album. Mm. So they wanted that. We said, okay, great. But we also want to do one more studio album. So we signed a package with them. We would give them a live album. They could have the best of, like take our other albums, and then uh, let us do the studio album. Did Hollywood let you include songs from those albums on the best of compilation <sighs> or no? In the contract, no. Because we had... <laughs> I think we had to wait a couple years before uh -huh. we could release. We retained all the copyright. So we, we owned the songs. Yeah. In other words, we had a live album that we recorded all as one piece at the Trocadero in Philly, but we actually had to slice out the songs that were recorded for Hollywood. Okay. Oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> That's okay. Now, could you re-release those two albums like on your own, or do they still own those masters? They do, but my understanding is that like in the year 20. 27, we can actually get them back because it'll be 35 years. Oh, wow. Something like that. Right around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> right be around the corner. Sooner than we know. <laughs> so then, Joe, you did like so many side projects. You were doing what? Touch Me Zoo, Town Managers, Low Budgets, Butterfly Joe. Yeah. Yeah. I also did Jiffy Squid and We're Not From Idaho. And you were doing the Joe Jack Talcum stuff. Yeah, I was still doing that. The main projects that were ongoing were... Touch Me Zoo, Town Managers, and Butterfly Joe. Okay. Did you tour on all three of those? Touch Me Zoo never really toured. We only played regionally. Town Managers toured as far west as Michigan and as far north as Maine and as far south as North Carolina. <laughs> Not as far as the Dead Milkman did. Yeah. And Butterfly Joe only, toured, only played regionally except for 
we did play in Albany and uh, Toronto wow. as part of a festival thing. That's awesome. And Dan from Low Budgets would eventually join Dead Milkman, right? Right. Can we talk about Dave or? Yeah. So he went abroad, right? He lived in Serbia for a little while. And then when the conflict happened, he left? Yeah. Yeah. Because he felt that uh, because of the anti-American attitude after the United States was involved in the NATO bombings, he could compromise his friends by just being friends with them. Mm. So he left first for the Czech Republic, and then and then he came back to the United States. Yeah, and he came back, when, when did he come back? Like late 90s? Uh, early 2000s, I think. Yeah. How did you find out about what happened Like when he passed away? like Had you had much contact with him before? Or? We had email contact yeah. and telephone conversations every now and then. And we'd seen each other too. The Dead Milkman had gotten together to record audio commentary for a DVD that Restless asked to put out. So we made an agreement with them to put that out, which also coincided with the Now We Are 20, which is another story. But mm. that's the last time when we recorded that commentary that all four of us were together that I remember. Though... His mother had passed away, so I was at his funeral, and that's really the last time I saw him. A month later, I got a call from Dean saying that Dave had passed away. Apparently, a parent suicide took, took his own life um, mm. while he was living in Westchester County, New York, 2004. I'm sure that was a huge shock, right? Yeah. Yeah. Nothing anybody expects to hear. No. Did he seem like he was happy then? Did, had he been conveying any struggles? or Nobody's happy when they're, when a parent passes away, I'm sure. Mm. Uh, but he seemed to be taking it rather well from my point of view. I remember him talking of going back to Serbia. It was unexpected. For years I'd known that he was the type to get depressed. But I didn't think it was that big a deal because... I thought everybody got depressed every now and then. I was the type to get depressed from time to time. And we talked about, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. When, you know, around the times that we first met, and he and I wrote songs. I also know that he suffered a lot of physical pain in his life. He had back pain a lot. It's nothing anybody could expect. Right. Especially since he had plans and it looked like the future was looking brighter yeah because he had taken care of his mother for a year while she had cancer she was fighting and it almost seemed like it was like she's this was an inevitable thing her passing and, yeah, yeah and that actually freed him up from having to be in pennsylvania now he could move on right so the timing of it just didn't seem to jibe with me do you remember when where you were when you got the news? Or I was working. I worked from home, but I worked for an internet software company, and that's where I was. Yeah. And I just sent a message to the other people in my company, the boss, the owner, my direct manager, saying, "I just got some terrible news. I don't. I'm going to have to call out for the rest of the day." Mm. 
I had a, a good friend in college who was a musician who I lived with for years and I, I got that call. You know, I wrote a song oh, yeah. about him and I know he'd suffer with depression, but he was in Germany when it happened and he'd been off his medication. Oh. So I can't imagine losing a bandmate, man. And I'm I'm sorry about that. And it sounds like what came of it was you guys in November, right? You did a charity show to raise money for... Oh yeah, we yeah. for mental health awareness. It wasn't our idea. They've had two brothers, Joe and Kurt. I think it was Kurt's idea. It may have been their a joint idea, a way to memorialize Dave. So that would, yeah, November. Playing that concert, I guess it was a therapeutic thing. I bet you still but, miss him, right? You think yeah, about him? I, yeah. Yeah, literally for, for a year solid, every single day I thought of Dave. Yeah. It was like he was a walking presence. Almost like, yeah, I got to get my shit together <laughs> in my life. Like a wake-up call kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, because, yeah, <laughs> your friends are precious kind of thing. Yeah, and it's like, that's that's a crazy thing, Joe. It's like, with being a musician, like, we tour, we make these deep friendships, we see mm-hmm. the world, we, we, we have this experience with the people who are meaningful to us, and there's this feeling that it's going to be, those people will be in your life forever, right? Exactly. Yeah. Because you think... You know, years we can t- we we can look back on this when we're old, and then when they're not there with you when you're old, you really can't do that. So many stories, like so many inside jokes, and like remember when this happened at this show in Germany or something like that. Only that brotherhood of people can relate to, mm-hmm. or sisterhood, or whatever. And did do you feel he, like he was such a funny guy too? <laughs> yeah. Do you have any funny stories you want to share about him? Or, <laughs> sounds like he was a really smart guy, right? Yeah, he was yeah. very very intelligent. I guess he had a, he had an economics degree from Purdue, was it? Wow! But he didn't. No, he had an economics degree from Temple. I'm sorry, Temple University. Um, but he he was he was going to Purdue University for a graduate degree when he decided it wasn't the right thing for him and he wanted to play bass. <laughs> so he took a 90 almost 180 degree turn in his life wow. which is pretty amazing and funny but yeah. great um for, and he was 28 years old at the time six years older than the oldest of us <laughs> wow which is a big age difference when you're in your 20s when you think about it but, yeah yeah so he was kind of like the big brother of the band uh. he was intelligent he was very bright one of his favorite things to do is make prank phone calls <laughs> yes he Invented this scenario where a fast food restaurant, every, back then every corporation had a one eight hundred number, which would be which was great fun for Dave. Right. When he got the the one eight hundred, especially on the road, because you don't have to pay for it, you can go to a payphone and just call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he got one. I forget the restaurant if it was Arby's or Hardee's or. Burger King, Hart, let's say it's Hardee's. I don't even know. Right. Let's or may make up a restaurant name, but he claimed that he would he claimed that there's this thing called a radar burger. <laughs> so he was he was acting like somebody who was completely out of the mind, but he right. k- stayed in in character the whole call. <laughs> and the woman or man or whoever on the other end of the phone would say, Well, we don't sell the a radar burger. <laughs> But the radar burger supposedly had, you would eat it and had a transmitter in it. 
So you could transmit out or get transmissions. <laughs> I in. don't know. I don't remember anymore. <laughs> I think maybe both. <laughs> maybe both. <laughs> like, oh, it was it came with a toy. I think. Okay. That was the selling point for kids. Yeah. So they could know where their friend was who ate the burger. I don't know. It would show up on the little toy, and he was complaining as a parent, saying, "I don't think this is a good thing. I don't think this is kosher for my kid to." <laughs> have a ra- eat a radar burger and have a <laughs> I don't know but just hearing it from yeah. there's a one side and not hearing it from the other sometimes mm-hmm. I guess yeah he would even record some of these things but wow like the jerky the boys other. yeah like the jerky boys recording it that's amazing um do you have those recordings no I don't I never had them yeah someone Maybe must. somebody inherited them yeah at least they're still around <laughs> you got back together what in 2008 yeah 2008? Well, we decided in 2009 to stay back together. Okay. <laughs> what precipitated that? And do you feel like continuing the group was kind of like a, a way to memorialize Dave? Or was it hard at first playing? At first, we got offered to play a festival show called Fun 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 Fest in Austin, Texas. Oh, right. Yeah. And each of us got offered individually. Someone asked me, someone asked Dean, someone uh-huh. asked Rodney. But I said no. Each of us said no. Okay. And my first thought was, well, Dave, we're not a band anymore. Dave is deceased. Our bass player is gone. I thought it was okay to do that memorial show because that's one thing. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't for profit. But this was something to do for money. Sure. The promoter was very persistent and convinced us. We got a call. I remember, I think Dean did or somebody from our producer, from the producer of Beelzebub and couple other albums that we recorded in Texas saying, you know, that promoter who's organizing this show was one of the child singers on your metaphysical graffiti album. Oh, we didn't know that. (laughs) That's awesome. So that was another angle to it. Yeah. And he he was offering us a huge, a nice amount of money paying all expenses paid. So come on. Part of the fun, fun, fun fest is that they always get a band to get back together who wasn't back together. You know, that's part of the draw. Right. We said, well, we don't have a bass player. I don't know the, exactly the order of how it was decided, but they knew that we did play a show without Dave with uh, Dan on bass. Right. So it was known that we could do that. And I think one of the things, each of us, when we were declining, we said, well, I don't think any of the others are going to want to anyway. <laughs> right. And then it was brought to our attention. That we all said, we don't think any of the others are going to want to, but we're starting to soften up and say, maybe we'll do that. But I don't think the others are going to do that. Yeah. So when we heard that, we all said the same thing. We said, okay, I guess we'll do this for this one time. Yeah. But it was such fun. Yeah. Uh, once again, we were, had to rehearse a, just like we did in 2004 to get a set together. How'd you pick the set? I don't remember. Yeah. Probably Rodney picked it. And how did it feel when you first like playing like the first few bars of the first song in the, that rehearsal studio back together? Was it bittersweet? It felt really good. Yeah. It felt natural. Yeah. For some reason, for me, it felt natural. To, well, no, no, duh. I played bass in a, I mean, he played bass in a, Dan played bass in a band in a low budget. So yeah. I had gotten used to him. But Dan was such a Dead Milkman fan growing up. And Dave was the only one of us he had never met, of course. Mm. But he said in interviews that Dave was his main inspiration. And you could tell that he got his style initially from Dave. So it did feel natural that way. In fact, Dan retaught us some of the songs because he amazingly knew them. Wow. Just He just <laughs> knew them. 
Yeah. He knew the bass parts. Right, right, right. That's awesome. From the source. He like yeah. the, His playing style came from the source. Yeah. When did you guys start working on The King in Yellow then? On the way back from Austin, we decided we might, I think it was Rodney's idea, we might want to keep doing this. So in 2009, January, we had a meeting to see if we still wanted to keep doing it. And the idea was we would do it. We would keep, we would start to play shows again as the Dead Milkmen with Dan on bass, but only if we wrote, started writing new songs with the intention of recording songs, because Rodney especially didn't want to be one of those bands that only played all their past songs and get trapped in the nostalgia. That's how The King and Yellow came about. So you were like, if we're going to be back together, we got to do a new record. That was it, kind of. And then and incorporate also incorporate Dan in the songwriting process. So what what's the, what was the process like? So like, do you all kind of do it democratically, or or it'll be like this is this is the Joe song, this is the Rodney song? Well, for that for that album, we just threw things. The internet was cool, nice uh, environment. Like there are tools already set yeah. up, maybe just website spaces or something. Yeah, but we just. Uh, would put demos of things we were working on, unfinished bits with emails saying, I need help finishing this. Or, Can you write a lyric for this? Does yeah. this inspire you? <laughs> right. Like throw everything, throw everything at the wall. Rodney had the stipulation is that we could use nothing that we had already come up with before 2009. It had to be that fresh. Okay. So that's we couldn't fair. go back into our archives of unfinished songs. Hmm. So that was the deal. We just did it that way. Yeah. And that, you couldn't have collaborated that way remotely in the 80s, really? Not <laughs> remotely. Yeah. We had to, in the 80s, it's still nice. I, I like being in person in collaboration. Yeah. But in the 80s, we, we still did a lot of mix and match, but it was like, oh, I'll go to Dave's house. He has a riff. Dave, Dave has a few riffs that he thinks are worthwhile. Can I do anything with them or... Yeah. Dean has a guitar part. Dean has a whole song, but no lyrics. Can Rodney do anything with it? Or Dean has a mm. lyric. He'll send it to me. Can I do anything with it? Can I make music to these lyrics? That sort of thing. That's cool. So it's like forcing each other to find solutions or more yeah, yeah. inspiring each other. Right? Yeah. You guys were nice enough to play on my Edgar Allan Poe EP on the, on the oh, Raven yeah, that was cover. Fun to do. That was awesome. We did that in Dean's home studio. That's awesome. And I remember we you upload the files on the Dropbox. Oh, yeah. And I moved the files. And I remember there's an email chain. <laughs> Where'd the files go? What'd you do? Rodney was mad. And it was like, yeah, Lars, Lars took them off the server. Because I was I, I didn't understand how Dropbox, Dropbox works. Dropbox, that's, that's what we used. <laughs> that Dropbox. Is, that's cool. Yeah. That's a cool platform. But I want to apologize for confusing this session by moving the wave files around. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I, I could have done the same thing. I didn't understand that. <laughs> You, when you move something, usually when you move from a folder to a folder, it makes a copy, but not Dropbox. Not Dropbox, it, it, it takes goes it away. Out. Yeah. yeah. So that was. It could have been me that did that, but it was you. I didn't know. That was um, and then we played it at the Halloween show. You let you ha- asked me to open for you guys, and that was awesome. Two thousand twelve, um, Halloween. Oh, good memory. Yeah. Union transfer. <laughs> Union transfer. That yeah. and that was so fun. Like I'd never seen you guys live before, and um, yeah, man, I I always. I always enjoy, always enjoy your solo music and the Dead Milkman stuff, and it's like really cool that you had time to talk, Joe. Thank you for letting me go into the history with you. No, you're welcome. This is tight. <laughs> um, what can I ask a question about the Dean's Dream song? All right. Like what? 
<laughs> what is what's the story behind that? Is it actual dream Dean had? Dean had a dream. Yeah. I I can almost remember where he he I think we had a practice at Dave's parents' house in Ridley Park, Pennsylvania. And after the practice, Dean said, I, "Joe, I wrote I wrote some lyrics based on a dream I just had recently. I woke up and wrote my dream down." Uh. And I just sort of formalized it into what I think is a lyric. Do you think you can do anything with it? So I said, I'll see what I can do. Yeah. And then I remember being at my parents' house with a guitar. And I said, oh, yeah, Dean gave me these lyrics. Let me, uh, let me read them through. Yeah. And it was really on the se- literally on the second reading, I had a melody. And I was like, oh, this is how it goes. Yeah. Because he didn't have a chorus or anything. Uh, so I had oh. to pick where what part goes back. Yeah. to be a chorus because yeah. it was just one long thing. So I I just kind of did it. And I was like, ah, yeah. Hurry up, get get my little trusty cassette <laughs> recorder yeah. and record me singing it. And then at the next the next practice we had at um, Dean's parents' house because we would rotate if we played too <laughs> too long in any one parent's house, they'd, there would be complaints. Shout out to patient parents. Yeah, patient parents. <laughs> yay. <laughs> and we also practice at my, my parents' basement every yeah. now and then. And also Rodney's parents' patio. Yeah, so I played it for him and he said, that's great. So that became a song that I sang in the set. Wow. Because I sang it. Yeah. It had, even though the it had a me- melody that's almost just like a note, it doesn't waver too much. Mm. But I guess it was decided that I would sing it. Yeah, I love that melody, and I love your version. You have a solo version on Spotify too, which is more kind of acousticy. That Joe Jack oh, version in two thousand four, also the year that Dave Blood passed away. I got asked to play a solo acoustic show. I'd never done anything like that before. Yeah, but my friend Chris, who's the main guy in the low budgets, promoted a show that was all acoustic mm. for a friend of his from Maine, where he grew up. Micah Smaldoon, Micah Blue Smaldoon, who was on tour. He said, this guy, he's really good. He's my friend. Well, I knew him too because he was in a band called Pinkerton Thugs who played a few times with the, with the town managers. So I knew who Micah was. But I didn't know that he'd done, done anything that was acoustic-y. So with a little arm twisting, Chris uh, convinced me to open up the show for Micah. And Dean's Dream was the only song of the Dead Milkman that mm. I had decided to play at that at that set. And it went over well. It was good in the acoustic. Even before that, somebody sent me over the internet, like in the year 2000 or 2001, a really spooky slow version of that song that they had mm. recorded. And I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of decided to also slow it down a that's, little bit. That's cool. It is a little bit spooky too. Yeah. That's cool. That's just what I like about your music because it straddles different moods. You can make music change mood just by changing a tempo or changing instrumentations too. It's the clothes that the lyrics and the chords wear kind of like give it that Mm -hmm. overall impression, which Mm -hmm. is cool. So 2014, you guys did Pretty Music for Pretty People. Both King and Yellow and Pretty Music for Pretty People are self-released. We released them on our own. Is Giving Groove the label that you're putting your next one on? Or did I make that up? We put our recent EP on Giving Groove. Oh. That's uh, Welcome to the End of the World. Wait, when did that come out? 2017, October. 
So you guys have stayed pretty active <laughs> with your releases. And have you guys been touring or you've just been doing festivals? We haven't played too many festivals recently. Yeah. We did a tour in 2015, I think, to promote Pretty Music for Pretty People on the West Coast. Mm. That's the last time we did any real touring. Uh, other than that, we've done flyouts, play a weekend, maybe two or three shows, fly back kind of thing. Yeah. Or play New York like we just recently did or go down to D.C., go down to Baltimore. We're going to play in Baltimore soon. You, you had Sage Francis open for you, right? Yeah, that was awesome. That was right before Christmas. I bet that was an amazing show. It was amazing. I was. Yeah. I loved every minute of being an audience member. <laughs> yeah, Sage is. Because uh, Gibbous Moon were great, and Sage Francis was awesome. How did you and Sage link? Was it just like an. Uh, Rodney and he are friends, and yeah. you have to ask Rodney how that happened. I don't yeah. know. But he's an awesome person. He's awesome. And you, okay, so you've been touring a lot solo too, right? I've stayed active doing the solo tours. Occasionally I'll have a. A band, but more recently, I've just been playing with just a guitar. Is that kind of freeing and fun? It's definitely freeing. There are two types of anxieties that uh -huh. I can have, <laughs> speaking about anxiety. Yeah. But one of the great things about solo is that my decisions are my decisions. Nobody has to agree upon anything. Even when I have a band, I the set list is a lot sh more strict. When you're completely solo, you can just go out there. You can go out there without a set, which I've done, and wing it and see how the audience takes the whole experience. It's like almost like you're improvising. And well, I you can let the audience help you too. Yeah. I feel like I am in a more writing stage personally. Rodney seems like he's always in a writing stage. He's very prolific and writes great songs. I'd rather be stationary. Are you guys working on any new Dead Milkman stuff? I am alluding to that. When I used the restroom upstairs, I saw your little recording setup. It's very portable. That looks very portable. Yeah, that's what I used to demo my songs or whatever. I got asked to be a part of a project that is specifically cassette analog only recording for a new up-and-coming Philadelphia tape-only label called This and That. Cool. So you're recording only onto cassette and then it's only going to be re released on cassette? Like they dub it? It's only going to be released physically on cassette as okay. far as I know, but it probably will be digitally released just like everything is these days. Yeah, that's really cool. But it'll have a lot of hiss. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you stay very creative and busy and it's pretty much, what, do you feel like how many hours a week are you writing and recording when you're not on tour? I don't know. I wish I had an app. <laughs> <laughs> a productivity app. Do you do it? Do you, well, because like for me, Joe, it's like I'll be like, okay, today I'll, I'll be like, I have to spend four hours writing lyrics or working oh, on Oh, I can't beats. work that way. I don't know. I don't, yeah. I can't, I can't predict anything. Yeah. You just, if it frustrates just, me to do that. Okay. You just inspired to pick up the guitar. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's, I don't know if it's cool or not. It's probably, it's actually bad. But because like, you have to, I, I understand you need to have deadlines to get things done. Or having a context is where the magic can but come. But what from. happens to me is that once I get in the groove, I have to take advantage of it uh -huh. because then the desire comes to finish something. If I don't get the desire to finish something, then it won't get finished. And I have so many unfinished things that mm. just fall by the waysides. Yeah. Um, so maybe your approach, is the more disciplined approach would definitely work. Yeah. But I have never been able to, to muster up. That discipline. I host my new songs on a site called Patreon. Have you heard of it? It's like a yeah, and that I do two songs a month for the fans, and sometimes the, it's a lot of pressure. You know, the deadline makes me create, and having chasing the muses of inspiration, you can't always like lure them in, into your box of you know what I'm saying. Sometimes they come, sometimes it's hard to know. 
Some songs you might like, the fans don't like. Some songs you might hate that the fans love, right? And so, so it's hard to know. I just try to keep moving. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> keep it moving. Well, keep it moving. That's a good, good uh, advice. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts as we wrap up? Well, fans can come to jacktalcum.com if they want to keep up. I put breaking news on that site. <laughs> I really got to update it. So it looks, it doesn't work on phones very well. I'm sorry. That's another thing I got to be disciplined and do. I'm very grateful that uh, people are paying attention t- to my music. And uh, I'm very grateful for music in general and for you interviewing me. Thank you. I'm grateful too. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you keep going. And you're a testament to artists that having longevity and not stopping is like, it's possible to be a career artist and it's possible to keep going. And so you inspire me, man. I know you okay. inspire yeah, tons of people. Keep going. Yeah, please keep going. Keep going. Joe, thank you. Check out um, jacktalcum.com for updates and information. And uh, we will hopefully talk to you another time. And I appreciate it, man. Peace. Okay. Peace out. It's Friday night cooking show with a horse meat dish I had to stay in the freezer all Thursday Eve talking to that horse I really had to go down to the sidewalk the skies all red and the streets filled with people from a high school band I escaped to a theater to see a girl with long blonde Right down to there I escaped to a theater To see a girl with long blonde hair We had to leave Got into a tan van Us two in the back With Steve McGarrett From EY50 At the steering wheel away we slide into a parking lot then all in slow motion these tough guys appear we argue and fight and one pulls an ivy it's me in the back but i'm all right i'm all right i'm all right i'm all right Thank you, Joe. Great interview. Great stories. I want to give a shout out to the Patreon supporters who made this episode possible. Some of the OG supporters, I want to give a shout out to my dad, Bob Nielsen, Holler, Adam, and Kayla. They're the OG supporters. Thank you all for your support and love. And some of the new Patreon supporters, I want to give a shout out to David, Andy, and Brad. Thank you all very much. Next week is Rodney Anonymous. More Patreon flavor coming soon. And yeah, thanks for listening. It's been great talking about the history of Philly Punk. All right, talk to you guys soon. Peace.